All right. Kids, are you ready? So we're, gonna, we're still in Acts chapter 15, and I'm going to talk to the, the young before I talk to the young at heart. So let me read, um, let me read the, the text. We'll just read it all together. Uh, I'll read it for all of us, and then uh, after I talk to the children, then we'll, uh, we'll talk uh, to the, with the rest of us children, because we're all children, right? We're just different ages. Acts chapter 15, beginning in, so we're, Acts chapter 15 is the letter uh, that was written to the uh, churches, and so I want to read to you, um, beginning in verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. And so one of the things that God tells us to do is to stay away from idols. So how many of you kids know what an idol is? A false god. Did you guys get that? You had a hand up. What, let me hear what you have to say. A false, a false, okay, false gods. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. There it is right there. All right, so, um, so it's, it's a false god, but sometimes idolatry isn't, we have this idea of what it is, but it's not always what we think it is. So we might think a false god would be like we put a statue up somewhere and we all went to the statue and we bowed down and worshipped it. We said that's a false god. But there's other ways that we can have idols in our life. So is it just things like that that we worship or could there be other things, kids, that we worship that maybe don't appear to be idols? Like could it be that we are so... We're so fond of, we're so in love with our games and our toys that we don't want to do anything but play with our games and play with our toys. And then when our parents tell us that it's time to eat supper or it's time to clean the house or it's time to go to bed, you get kind of whiny. Do any of you all ever get whiny? Who gets whiny? You get whiny, it's like, I want to keep playing my game. It, or sometimes your parents might say, you've had enough screen time. Why? I've only got to play this game for four hours. Why can't I play it for four more hours? You guys ever do that? Yeah, I'm going to ask your parents and they're going to tell me the truth. You do, you're telling me the truth. I see heads shaking. Yes, we do that. Do you know that even that can be an idol? Did you know that? The games you play, the things you love to do. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of us would stay home on Sunday mornings and play our games instead of coming to church because I love to play my game so much. And you don't think about loving your game more than loving God because in your, your mind you think, I love God. But do you know that the things that we devote our time to, the things that consume our heart and our mind the most 
those are really the things that we idolize. Those are the things, in a sense, that we worship. Now, that doesn't mean we're all, you know, we, can, we all have things that we have to do. It doesn't matter how old we are. Our young, the youngest among us have chores or have things you have to do. We have jobs. We have responsibilities. And those things consume our time and they consume our thinking. And there's nothing wrong with that. But are we able to do those things and not lose sight of God? Not forget that we are to be thankful always in all things and for all things to God. Can we play our games or have screen time or do our work as adults and understand that we're able to do what we do because of God? Therefore, that translates into us being thankful. So idolatry is not just like having a big statue put up somewhere that y'all go bow down to. Idolatry can be anything that we devote our time to. So kids, when your parents are asking you to put your games away or they're asking you to, to come and help and you find yourself becoming whiny and you don't want to do that, because what do we teach you guys? Tomorrow's the first day of school at Koinonia, classical Christian school, and we talk about obeying how? How are we all supposed to obey? Kids, tell the adults that might not know. How should we obey? Huh? Right and that means we obey quickly and cheerfully, right? Obey right away, all the way, with a good attitude every day. And you know that doesn't just apply to children. It applies to all of us. Obeying God quickly and cheerfully. And we can know that we suffer from idolatry when we find those things pulling us away from God and making us resistant to obeying God. Or in the, in the lives of children, it could be obeying your parents. So Jesus wants us to flee idolatry. And this is the point of this letter that is written here uh, for us in Acts chapter 15. Last week, we kind of did an introduction to Acts chapter 15. And uh, we said that Acts chapter 15 is crucial for understanding how the law of God applies to our life today. This decree or this letter that was sent to the Gentile churches in Asia from the Jerusalem council was to guide them in how they were to live as followers of Jesus, affirming that we are justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And as we understand the context from which this letter was written, we'll be better equipped to rightly divide the word of truth. We'll learn to love God's law. We'll learn how to apply God's law and bear witness to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Christ. We ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds to the truth of your word, to the truth of the gospel, that it would find entrance, it would break down the hard places and the walls that uh, we might have that are holding us back from obeying you quickly and cheerfully. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy always at work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 
We're not going to read the entire letter. You can go back and read Acts chapter 15, but Acts chapter 15 is this letter. So what was happening was the Gentiles, and who are the Gentiles? Everyone other than the Jews. So from a Jew's point of view, the world is divided into two types of people, Jews and everybody else. And all of those in the scripture are referred to as Gentiles. And remember that word Gentile is just a word that means the nations. The nations. And so what had happened, we see as we've gone through the book of Acts, is after the resurrection of Christ, after the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, we see the gospel traveling to the nations. So it began in Jerusalem, it left Jerusalem, went to Judea, to Samaria, and then it went to the other parts of the earth. And we saw in Acts chapter 10 where the apostle Peter goes and he preaches to the house of Cornelius. Then the apostle Paul goes to Antioch. This is where the first, the first place that the word Christian was ever used was in Antioch. The church in Antioch called the followers of Jesus Christians. And so it was in Antioch that people went from Jerusalem back up to Antioch to these Gentile churches. So these were the people who were not Jewish. They could have been anything, but they weren't the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They weren't ethnic Jews. They were Greeks. They were Romans, Latins. They were barbarians, Scythians. They were all the types of different races and ethnic groups that lived all over the known world in, in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire conquered the world and they'd bring people in. Slaves would come in. So in this part of the world, you had literally people living there that were literally from all parts of the world. And the Apostle Paul goes and he preaches the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles. He went to the Jews first. The Jews didn't want to hear it, so... It was in Acts that we read, he says, I'll go to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles wanted to hear the word of God. They wanted the message of the gospel, the message of salvation. And so after it became known that Paul is preaching to the Gentiles, some believers in Jesus who were Jewish, now these weren't rejectors of Christ, these were people who had embraced Christ, went up to the Gentile churches and said, the only way you can be saved is to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. If you're not keeping the law of Moses, you can't, you're not really saved. And Paul and Barnabas heard about this, and the Bible says they had no small dispute with these people, so much so that now they've come to Jerusalem and they've got this big council. And what did the people in Jerusalem decide? What did James, the brother of Christ, they all came to the conclusion that we're not going to put a greater burden on the Gentiles. It's not necessary for them to be circumcised and observe the law of Moses. So what should they do? And it was these guidelines given in this letter that's recorded for us in our Bibles in Acts chapter 15. Very important for us today. Because we live the way we live, and we eat the way we eat, and we worship the way we worship because we were not placed under the constraint of the law of Moses. But we need to understand what that means, and we need to understand what that does not mean. Some in the world today say we're not under the law. Some actually, people in the church believe that there's a God of the Old Testament and there's a God of the New Testament. 
And we don't live under the God of the Old Testament. That means all those things said in the Old Testament don't apply to us. And there are a lot of things that don't apply to us, but we need to understand why they don't apply to us and not be misinformed or misunderstand what the Bible is really teaching. So this letter written to the Gentiles and delivered, hand-delivered by, uh, by the, the council in Jerusalem and by these Jews uh, commanded that the Gentiles, that the nations, those who weren't Jews, because the Jews already understood this because they were taught the law of God and they knew about holiness and righteousness and what all of those things meant, the things you should do and the things you shouldn't do. So this letter commanded the nations to, be fa to faithfully embrace God's holiness, not by keeping the law of Moses, but by embracing the nature and the character of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We were to reject and we are to reject the sinful practices of an idolatrous pagan world. And guess what we live in? We live in an idolatrous pagan world. We do. We are commanded to do the same today. We must embrace God's holiness while rejecting the sinful practices of the world. We must boldly love and accept people while at the same time boldly hating and rejecting their sin in love. We need to understand that sin kills. The end of sin is death. And we have to love people enough to boldly let them know that your sin will lead to your death, your eternal death. And we can't truly love people if we're not willing to tell them the truth. So this letter was not a rejection of God's law. It didn't encourage the Gentiles to do that. The Pharisees kept the law to the letter, Jesus said. I mean, jot and tittle, it's like... Every period, every comma, every I dotted, every T crossed. That's how well the Pharisees kept the law, yet Jesus called them unrighteous. He called them a brood of vipers, wicked, whitewashed tombs, painted tombs filled with dead man bones. That's the way Jesus described these Pharisees who were really good at keeping the law, but they didn't know anything about God's true righteousness, true holiness, his justice, his love, his mercy. So we need to understand that they're not telling the Gentiles they don't have to pay attention to God's law. There's just certain things that don't apply to them because the law doesn't make us righteous. The law doesn't make us holy. The law doesn't make us accepted before God. Jesus Christ does that. So as we embrace Jesus, we also embrace the holiness of God that's revealed to us in the law of God and is personified for us in Jesus Christ, who is our law keeper. How many men ever walked the earth and ever will walk the earth that kept God's law perfectly? Nobody. No, there was one, Jesus Christ. He is the law keeper. Every other man failed, and it was never meant to be the first Adam that would keep God's law. It was always meant to be the last Adam, the second man, Jesus Christ. 
And so we are justified, we are made righteous, we are made holy as we trust in Jesus, the only one who's ever kept God's law perfectly. So these four very simple things were put in this very short letter, which is pretty comprehensive. And we remember we talked last week about the holiness code revealed in, in Leviticus 17 through 26. And as we go through this, and we're not going to cover all this today, Remember, we're going to take our time, and we're going to go through this, and we're going to see that what they told these believers to do, four things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, that you abstain from blood, that you abstain from things strangled, and that you abstain from sexual immorality. These four simple principles are very comprehensive in the way we are to live our lives, and this comes out of the Word of God. This came from Leviticus. And they would have known this because they had the scriptures. We don't know this today because we very often believe the Bible, but we don't read the Bible as much as we should, which is why we encourage you constantly to get on the Bible reading program and just begin reading the Bible every day. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to understand all of its mysteries. Just read it. Just think of it like when you're ground outside, when your garden is really dry and the earth is cracked. And you just go out there and you just begin to let the gentle water fall on it. And, you know, you don't, you don't like, get a fire hose and that would just destroy everything. You just, you just turn your, your hose on. You have that attachment that makes it like rain. And you just begin to let the water rain. And it just rains and rains. And, and eventually it, it waters the earth. That's what the rain does, Right? Well, that's the way you need to think about reading the Bible. There's ways to read it where you study and you go in depth and you do all that or you pick out things relevant to your situation or circumstance. But we all need to just read the Bible. Just read it and let it be like a gentle rain that waters our dry earth. So this is where these four principles came from. This short and simple summary of a potentially long and complex issue had its foundations in the Word of God. These four brief points are comprehensive in their scope as they address our devotion and our worship of God, revealed in three areas of common temptation in daily life. So it's dealing really, these four, these four things that, that they were told to abstain from really deal with, with three areas of temptation that we're all subject to. The area of idolatry, we've already talked about that a little bit. We're going to talk about it some more. The area of food. You think, what in the heck does food have to do with all of this? Well, it has a lot to do with it. In the area of sexual immorality. So just because we're not specifically tempted today in the same way these believers were tempted in their day doesn't mean that the Word of God no longer applies. That's what a lot of people will tell you. Well, this doesn't apply anymore. Homosexuality being a sin doesn't apply anymore because we've spiritually evolved. These things don't apply because we're not living in the same culture as those people did, and all those things are gone. That's not the point. Just because we're not specifically tempted today in the same ways these believers were tempted in their day does not mean the Word of God no longer applies. These commands, as, uh, as are all of God's commands, are not based on the particular sins and temptations of the day, but on the holiness, on the righteousness, and on the justice of God's eternal nature and character. 
They were not to live under the law of Moses, but they were to live under the nature and character. They were to emulate the nature and the character of God revealed in the word of God. So let's talk about idolatry. Here's what the letter said. It is necessary, that's an important word, it is not suggested, it's not recommended, it is necessary that you abstain from things offered to idols. Obviously, we could spend months teaching about idolatry, but here in this letter, the directive was given to reject idolatry, not just foods or any other object offered to idols. This is a clear command to reject idolatry. Now, those believers knew that already. It's why they had repented of following pagan gods and embraced Jesus. But just like in our life today, we profess our love for God, our faith in Jesus, but I bet you all of us, I know myself, if I really examine my life, and I should, I'm going to find that there are areas of idolatry in my life that need to be dealt with. They're not obvious to me, and that's the point here. This letter was pointing out some very obvious areas that the believers would fall into temptation to become involved in idolatry. The obvious things were, were, were not a problem. It's never the obvious things that are our problem. It's the less than obvious things that are our problem. I'll answer questions afterwards, okay? You just keep that. Write that down somewhere so you don't forget. All right? Here in this letter, the directive was given to reject idolatry. This was affirming an obvious truth that any form of idolatry is sin. And that truth, though, can become muddled. It can become compromised in obvious ways, but also in less than obvious ways. So let's look at the scripture where this comes from. Leviticus chapter 17, verses 7 through 9. Because all of this is rooted in the Bible. There shall no more be, they shall no more offer sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This is God's word to his people Israel. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Also you shall say to them, whatever a man, whatever a man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. That would have been considered idolatry. Because we were to offer our sacrifices to the Lord. It was necessary for Israel to offer sacrifice to the Lord, not to demons, not to false gods. It is necessary that we worship the Lord and not give place to demons in our worship and in our daily living. And we would not do that in an obvious way. We wouldn't even do that in a purposeful way. We wouldn't do that. But are there ways that we can do that that we're not aware of? And this is what the point of this letter was. And this is why we should take this letter today and understand how it applies to our life. Are there blind spots that we have and we don't realize that we are involved in idolatry, false worship, just because we can't see it and we don't know it doesn't mean it's not there. So things that were offered to idols were things offered to demons. So if we're not offering things up to God, then what's, who are we offering it to? 
Well, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. If it's not offered up to God, ultimately it's, it's offered up to, to demons. Because we're either serving the kingdom of light or we're serving the kingdom of darkness. This was a call to separate themselves from the pagan world of worship and sacrifice to demons. To flee idolatry in every way, even in the food that they ate. Now this may seem strange to us because we don't live in a culture that commonly sacrifices animals to gods. Those cultures still exist in the earth, but they don't exist here. So we read this and we think, well, this doesn't really apply to me because I don't live in that world anymore. That's why the Bible's not relevant to me because that's not the world I live in. But that would be a mistake to make that assumption because it absolutely is relevant because idolatry is absolutely real and relevant for us today. This was common in the context found in Acts 15. It's not... It's, it's, not common in that sense for us, but it's common in other ways. We should know that idolatry is also not uncommon in our culture today. It's just that we don't often recognize it as such. But do you know that the devil doesn't care whether you recognize it as idolatry or not? He doesn't care how you worship, what you worship, as long as your worship is not true and directed to the true and living God. The devil doesn't care how we worship him, known or unknown. God, though, God cares greatly. And so should we. We should be very purposeful in our worship of God in all of our life. And we need to understand that all of our life is worship before God. So now in Christ, we don't offer up animals. We offer up ourselves as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable act of worship. We see this in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. We are to continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's Hebrews 13, 15. So we're not offering up animals or grains or foods. We're offering up ourselves. We're offering up the fruit of our lips, which is giving thanks to his name. And how often are we to do this? Continually. This is our worship of God, offered up to him willingly and joyfully from grateful hearts. Idolatry is the worship of a false god. You guys got it right. Associating with things sacrificed to idols was associating with false worship and giving witness to practices that were anti-Christ. Do not be fooled into thinking that just because we're not tempted with that form of idolatry today in our modern, intellectually, and technologically advanced culture that we're not susceptible to idolatry because we are, because we can make anything an idol. Have you noticed how devoted we are to our smart devices? Now, when we could go to restaurants, you know, anytime we wanted and sit as close as we wanted and fill a restaurant up. Have you ever been, I've done this numerous times, have you ever been in a restaurant filled with people and just sat back and noticed how many people are sitting at tables with other people and everybody at the table is staring at their screens? It's really kind of comical, but in a sad way. 
I know that those devices have become necessary in many ways, and I carry mine with me all the time. I can't be without it. It, it carries everything. It has everything. I, I couldn't function without my smartphone. I, I couldn't. Uh, that's sad to say, but that's just the way our culture is built. It's got my calendar. It's got everything I need to do. It's there. It keeps me on track. That's not a bad thing. We are to be beholding or contemplating, though, the face of God is what the Scripture teaches us. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Have you noticed how much we behold our screens? Does the average American spend more time on a screen than in the scripture? The answer is yes. And and that goes for, I would say, the vast majority of us. And I'm not saying that that's a sinful thing, but it could be. Some of us, it's necessary we're on our screens all the time. That's not a bad thing. This is a reality for many reasons, and it's not all sinful. The point is not to make sure I'm reading my Bible more than I'm on a screen, because our jobs may demand that we're on our screens all day long. But it is worth asking ourselves, not infrequently, who am I most devoted to? Is it God? What am I most devoted to? What am I devoting my life to? And you can devote your life to God through your work. That's right, and that's true. You should do that. But we need to examine these areas of our life to to make sure that we're not falling into idolatry. Technology is a gift from God, but so are trees and rocks and animals. And men have worshipped trees and rocks and animals throughout history. And guess what we worship today? We worship our technology today. So trees and rocks and animals aren't sinful, but depending on how you use them, they can be sinful, and the same is true for technology. And it's always been the case with man. If we're not worshiping the creator, we are worshiping the creature. This is true even if that creature is ourself, and mostly if we're not worshiping the creator, the creature that we are worshiping is ourself. Our worship will be determined by the focus of our heart, and that will be made known by the life that we live. We can place any number of things before God, and all things we place before him become idols. We all worship, whether we know it or not. The question is the object of our worship. We must learn to live life, to do our work, our play, to do everything with a heart that is worshiping God. We do this, one of the greatest ways, one of the most effective ways you can do this is by continually giving thanks to his name. We're called to worship the creator of heaven and in earth, the heaven of heaven and earth in spirit and in truth. He alone is to be the center of our life and so the center of our worship. What we place at the center of our life more than likely is what we're going to worship. And when he is that center, then we can know that we are not fallen into idolatry. We must not be lulled into thinking idolatry is some ancient concept that doesn't exist today. It has no place in the modern world because that is a lie that the enemy wants us to believe. Our hearts are constantly prone to idolatry. Our continual worship and devotion to the Lord from grateful heart frees us from 
that idolatry. Now, I want to talk about food for a little bit. I like to talk about food because I like food. We're not really changing subjects. The guidelines for food, as with all things, come back to our worship, and, and it comes back to this area of idolatry. I will worship and obey God, or I will not. I will freely confess that I love food. Me. I love food. I love to eat. I love to cook. I love to appreciate and to enjoy. I love to go to my daughter-in-laws and to my daughters, and I love to taste the food that they cook because they're all very good cooks. I love to appreciate the goodness of that food. I, I just love food. I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a gift. It's a beautiful gift from God. But it's also one of the idols that I struggle with. And I monitor my idolatry on a little meter I use at least twice a day. It's commonly called a blood glucose monitor, but for me, it's an idolatry monitor, really and truly. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Bible says I'm to honor it. Which, I, which do I love more, God or the food that could destroy my temple? Now, I realize I'm running a great risk because my family's listening to every word I'm saying, and they're going to call me out on this when I go home and I want to eat not just one piece of dessert, but three pieces of dessert. <laughs> or when Rosemary makes that uh, pancake uh, casserole or whatever it is she posted on Facebook, like, George, when we have coffee, just that would be a great time. But, but you see what I mean? I, I mean, this is the truth. The bod my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and food can either build it up or food can destroy it. I'm speaking for myself here. For me, it is more than my health. For me, it's a question of idolatry. Is food more important to me than God? I confess to you, your pastor confesses to you that, that often it is. Because I eat things in ways that are not honoring to my temple. Today in our culture, not only for me, but for many, food can become an idol. Food itself is not sinful. But how we use it or how we abuse it absolutely can be. The admonition about idolatry, that admonition, flee from things offered to idols, centered around food. Knowingly eating things sacrificed to idols could be participating in the idolatry of the culture. That was, that was part of this letter. The best way to avoid that is to abstain from those things sacrificed to idols. Then you don't have to worry about it. But we don't have that problem today. Going to the worship service at the local pagan temple was an obvious joining with demons. That should be easy to discern and easy to abstain from. And it was for those believers who were receiving this letter. Supporting the demonic food trade was possibly less obviously and certainly more tricky. All the butchers who got their meat from the animal sacrificed to the demons... They didn't throw that meat away. They sold that meat in the local markets. And when you were getting ready to have supper that night and you went to the local market to buy your meat, you very possibly were buying meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. So you see where this could get a little bit more tricky. And so what they told the church was, 
If you know it's been sacrificed to an idol, abstain from it. Just, just remove yourself from that realm. We all have to eat, but we don't have to all eat, and we don't have to eat all things. The command was to abstain from things offered to idols. From this and also the admonition about blood and things strangled, which we'll talk more about later, we'll see that our food is a central part of our spiritual life for many reasons. And in the context of a culture where idolatry is so prevalent and sacrificing to idols is so commonplace, the food one would eat and all the things revolving around that food had implications for the worship and the witness of the truth. These guidelines in this letter came out of God's law given to Israel and recorded in Leviticus. All of these things are ultimately pointing us to Christ. There is nothing that speaks of Christ more than his blood. And blood points us to Christ, and blood points us specifically to his blood that was shed for us on the cross. Now, we're going to stop there this week. Next week, we're going to pick up, and we're going to talk about that next thing that it is necessary that you abstain from blood. This is all still related to, to idolatry and specifically in the context of our food. And we're going to then talk about how Jesus addressed these things in the law. So in our culture today, there are a lot of people who say, well, you know, you can't call certain sexual sins sinful anymore because we don't think eating shrimp is sinful. And we don't think having bacon with our eggs is sinful. And we don't think having grilled pork chops is sinful. But yet the Bible says you're, you shouldn't eat a pig or you shouldn't eat a shrimp. And if the Bible says that that's wrong, then, then why? And, and, and we think it's okay now, then why isn't homosexuality okay now? Because it's all listed together there in Leviticus. But this is the great misunderstanding. This is exactly what this letter is addressing. This is exactly what the Jerusalem Council, in a very short, brief letter, is addressing. And this is what the believers would have understood. Not just because of the letter from the Jerusalem Council, but we're going to look at the very words of Jesus that address food and the food we eat. We read it in our Bible reading today. Where long before Peter went to the Gentiles, Jesus had already declared all foods clean. Before he went to the cross, he did that. This was one of the reasons the Jews wanted to kill him. They understood what Jesus was saying. What they didn't understand was it was not just a man saying it. It was the creator of heaven and earth, the very one who created the foods that we eat. That's who was saying it. And he has the authority to call any food clean or unclean. He has the authority to call those things that are not as though they are. He alone has that authority. And we miss that today in our arguments of trying to justify sin. And we think we have these gotcha moments when we say, uh, do you eat shrimp? Well, yes, I do. Uh, well, then you must think homosexuality is not a sin. No, actually, I do, and so does God. It doesn't really matter what I think. It's what God has declared. 
And so we need to understand how to rightly divide the word of truth. And, and this is why we're going to take our time and go through this chapter of Acts because it's going to be very important in helping us understand these very relevant issues for our day. So having said that, let's get ready to come to the table. This message to the Gentiles is a message to all of us. This is a table of thanksgiving. And we're not called today to offer up animals. We're not called to offer up our blood. We are called to offer up our life. We're called living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. We're to offer ourselves up to God. We're to offer the fruit of our lips. What is that? That is our continually giving thanks to his name. And this is what the Bible teaches us, that we are to give thanks in all things and for all things. It doesn't, doesn't speak to how easy that is. It just commands us what we are to do. And you, if you've lived life long enough, you know there are a lot of things you're going to encounter in life that are very difficult to give thanks in and to give thanks for. But if we understand who God is and our relationship to God and His relationship to all things, this helps us understand what it means to offer up a sacrifice of praise with the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. That's what this table is about. It's giving thanks to God for the body and the blood of Jesus. And the reason we do this every week is because every week we need to affirm our thankfulness to God. Every week we need to affirm and acknowledge his, co his covenant established by his body and by his blood. Every week we should be reminded that the body of Christ is present, not in that bread, but in the seats you occupy, because Christ lives in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is how the body is present at the table. It's not because the Eucharist, not because the bread magically turns into the body of Christ. No, it doesn't do that. It's because you are the body of Christ. And we eat that bread and we drink that cup and we proclaim that real body and that real blood. Jesus gave up and shed for us so that we could have life, eternal life in him, and worship him, and put him at the center of all things, so that we do not fall into idolatry, but we stay focused and centered in Christ, continually giving thanks to him, continually acknowledging him in all things. Amen? You are all welcome as you trust Jesus to come to this table. Let's stand. Idolatry might not be something people commonly think about in our culture today, but idolatry is all around us. It's hidden in our hearts, and it comes out of our lives in the way that we live. It's hidden in our heart, and it comes out in long-accepted ways accepted by our culture, but not necessarily accepted by God. We are changed 
by the miracle of the power of God. And when we are changed by His Spirit, by His life, we are to be changed individuals. And this is why this letter was written to the church, to flee from, to abstain from things associated with idolatry. We are charged to guard against and to abstain from the very same idolatry the church 2,000 years ago was charged to abstain from. And the way we do that is to proclaim Christ in all of life for all the world. To hear, to see, and to know. How will Christ be known today? Through his people, through you and through me. How we walk and how we talk, how we do our work, how we play, how we eat, how we sleep. Everything we do communicates Christ. And the world is watching whether we realize it or not. So our charge is to be faithful witnesses to Christ in all things, to his glory. Amen.